Good evening. We are going to discuss the last of the Aseris Adibros, Lo Sachmot. One is prohibited from coveting uh, someone else's property, um, his uh, acquisitions, his wife, his home, and so on. In the first rendition of the Aseris Adibros in the Seder of Yisro, Torah describes this prohibition simply as lo sachmot. In the repeat of the Aseris Adibros, in the Sedra of Leschanan, the Torah adds another dimension to lo sachmot, to not coveting, of lo sisave, not desiring. Let us first discuss what exactly this prohibition is. And as in many things in Torah, there is a difference of opinion amongst the Rishonim what exactly this prohibition entails. The Rambam says that this prohibition is not thought-oriented, but action-oriented, meaning that the prohibition is basically putting pressure on someone to uh, get something that they have, um, that would be difficult to uh, get somewhere else and uh, to put pressure until the person uh, even sells it to him but because of his desire to have what that other person has he puts in a tremendous amount of effort and in the end he succeeds in uh, getting it either by sale or by hook or by crook from the other person he doesn't succeed in getting it, but he does put in the effort and pressure of trying to get it, then the Rambam holds he is transgressing the prohibition of losisave, uh, which again is not only thought-oriented, but action. He has to put his desire into action of making the attempt to put the pressure to get it. Um, if he gets it, then he transgresses the prohibition of Losachmot. If he doesn't end up getting it, he still transgresses the prohibition of Losisave. That is the opinion of the Rambam. The Sefer HaChinuch, on the other hand, agrees with the Rambam that the prohibition of Losachmot is action-oriented, that you only transgress that prohibition if you put in a tremendous effort and pressure to get something that belongs to someone else um, that he's not really interested in giving up uh, without that pressure. And um, only if you're successful do you transgress the prohibition of losachmot. However, the prohibition of losisave, says the Chinuch, is more thought-oriented and just wanting that thing without putting in any effort or pressure uh, one transgresses the prohibition of losisave. The Ibn Ezra, on the other hand, holds that the prohibition is totally thought-oriented, that no action has to be done, and just wanting something that someone else has, one transgresses the prohibition of losachmod and losisave. However, it should be noted that if someone sees something um, that he likes that someone else has, and he could uh, go and buy something similar to that, 
That's not Losach mode. Losach mode, basically, even according to the Ibn Ezra, is where you see something that someone else has that's not available easily to get somewhere else, and you want that thing um, that that person has specifically. Um, there's no prohibition for people to want to buy things and to have new things, and if the reason that they um, uh, know that such a thing exists is because they saw it by someone else, and because of that they have a desire to go buy one for themselves, that's not uh, the prohibition, even according to the Ibn Ezra. Also, the um, Kina Sofrim uh, is also not included in this, and that is wanting something spiritual that the other person has. Uh, you see, someone has a, a good character trait, and you desire to have that character trait too. Uh, someone has a greater knowledge of Torah, and you want that greater knowledge for yourself. That's called kinas sofrim, and that's not included in the prohibition, um, because uh, because God is not the one who ordains what kind of character traits you have, you have to work on that, or how much Torah knowledge you have, or how uh, religious you are. So there you can uh, desire something that you see by others. However, that is only if you want to have what the other person has. You want to have the same Torah knowledge that he has, and you're going to work on that. You want to have the same good character traits that he has, and you're going to work on that. But if it's a jealousy that uh, is not spurring you on to greater heights, but you're just jealous of that person, and therefore you'll be just as happy if he lost his Torah knowledge, if he lost his good character traits, so you'd be equal with him, uh, that for sure is not, uh, not proper and not permitted. Now let's let delve a little bit deeper into the opinions that we've mentioned. First of all, the Rambam. The Rambam seems to contradict himself because the Rambam says that if you transgress the prohibition of Losachmot, you do not get lashes. You don't get malchus for, for, for uh, being over this prohibition of transgressing this prohibition because it's a love, Shein Bomaisa. It's a prohibition that you uh, transgress without an action. Basically, uh, the desire that you had and the effort that you put in. They ask on this, but there is an action. The Rambam says that unless you put pressure and you do an action and you are successful in getting it, you're not transgressing this prohibition. It would seem that this prohibition does entail action so why shouldn't you get lashes? Why is it considered a prohibition that does not have action involved in it, that you transgress it without action, when the Rambam seems to say that you only transgress it if you put in a lot of effort and pressure and in accomplish getting it in the end? Perhaps the answer is the following. The Rambam holds that the transgression itself is wanting that thing that someone else has. However, it's unreasonable to think that just seeing something someone else has and having a fleeting uh, desire for it should be a prohibition. 
Therefore, the Rambam holds that in order for that desire to be enough of a desire to to create a transgression, it has to be something that motivates you to put a tremendous amount of effort and pressure into getting it. And uh, only if you put in the effort and pressure to get it and are successful, does that show that the desire you had was uh, of, a, of, of an intensity that then creates the prohibition. So really the prohibition is the desire, except in order to ascertain if that desire was strong enough, it had the measure of desire that creates this prohibition, um, the effort, the pressure, and the success of getting it um, is a sign that the desire was enough. So, but the prohibition is the desire, and the pressure and the getting it is only an indication of how much desire you really had. Comes out that the word chenda, losachmo, uh, implies wanting something enough that you'll put in a tremendous amount of effort and get it in the end. With this, I want to explain how David HaMelech in Tehillim describes the sin of the spies. They detested the desirable, coveted land. Um, it doesn't seem like that was the sin of the spies. The sin of the spies is that they considered Eretz Yisrael very nice, but they considered it something that was unattainable. There is a Maharsha. The Maharsha says that when the spies came back, they brought samples of things in Eretz Yisrael. And they brought uh, grapes, and they brought a pomegranate, and uh, they brought figs. Of the seven things that Eretz Yisrael is blessed with, they did not bring olives, they didn't bring uh, wheat, or barley, or um, dates. Marshall explains that the things they brought were basically like dessert. They were luxuries. A person can live without figs, and he can live without grapes, and he can live without pomegranates. But the things they didn't bring were wheat, barley, uh, are the staples of life. Uh, oil is needed for cooking, olive oil. And um, dates, the Gemara says, also is something that gives sustenance. And they made the following statement. Eretz Yisrael is a great place to visit. It's like Disneyland, but nobody lives there. It's nice for desserts, but the staples of life don't exist there. It's unattainable. That's Vayimosu Be'eretz Chemda. They didn't see Eretz Yisrael as something as a result of Chemda, that you want it so much that you get it. But their desire for Eretz Yisrael wasn't enough to put in the effort and the pressure to get it. And that was, that was the, uh, the, the, the sin. And had they had wanted it so much, they would have been willing to sacrifice for it and to do everything and to have faith in God that he would help them to get it. But because they had this feeling that Eretz Yisrael is a very nice place to visit, 
but it's not a place that's attainable. It's not livable. It's not something, therefore they didn't put the pressure and the effort and the tremendous emun and bitachon to be able to actually conquer it and make it theirs. The Ibn Ezra asks, according to his opinion, that you transgress this prohibition merely by wanting what someone else has, how is it possible to control that? How could the Torah prohibit wanting something? You see it, it's natural, you want it. Right? The Torah can prohibit trying to get it, putting pressure like the Rambam says. But merely the, 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 the feeling that someone has something that attracts me and I want it, um, how could you control yourself? How can the Torah expect you not to transgress this prohibition? So, the Ibn Ezra says that people want what they feel that they um, is in their league, which is possible for them to have. Some things is out of their league completely, people don't have a desire for because they know it's not possible for them to have that. Um, he gives an example of uh, a pauper, a peasant, who uh, does not desire uh, to have the king's daughter as his wife. He knows that princess is out of his league. Now, I don't know too many peasants or too many king's daughters, so I'll give you another, another example. You have a doctor and a shoemaker who are neighbors, and the doctor gets the state-of-the-art ultrasound equipment, and the shoemaker gets the state-of-the-art sewing machine. It's unreasonable to think that the doctor will covet the shoemaker's sewing machine because uh, the doctor doesn't need a sewing machine, and if he sews up his patients with a sewing machine, he's not going to be a doctor too long. And the shoemaker is not going to covet the doctor's ultrasound equipment because he doesn't need ultrasound equipment. He knows what's in his shoes, feet. So uh, the doctor's not going to be jealous of the shoemaker, and the shoemaker is not going to be jealous of the doctor. It's completely out of their league. But let another doctor get a better ultrasound equipment. Let another shoemaker get a better sewing machine. The shoemaker will be jealous of the shoemaker and the doctor of the other doctor. Says the Ibn Ezra, if a person has the right perspective on this world and he believes that everything that a person has physically, materially, is given to him by God. Doesn't, he's not grabbing it himself. But everything is ordained by the Rabbana Shalom. It's, I always like to compare it to a play. A person gets a part in a play, so he gets a costume to wear that fits his part, and he gets props to use, to, uh, use, to use in, in fulfillment of his part. If you're the king, you may have a scepter as one prop and one change of clothing, royal garments. If you're the court jester, you may have ten props and uh, ten changes of clothing to be the court jester. doesn't make the court jester more important than the king. just means that for his part in the play, he needs these costumes and he needs these props. 
And the king doesn't need that for his part in the play. So too, every person was created to fulfill a mission in this world. And his nishama was uh, given the characteristics needed to fulfill that mission. That's his part in the play. And he comes on in a certain scene, on a certain place, on the stage. That's his mission in this world. In order to fulfill his mission, he's given a costume. It's called a body. And he's given props. Those are called his material possessions. Whatever God ordains for a person, bodily, physically, and materially, is in order to enable him to fulfill his role, his mission in this world. And therefore, what one person has is not possible for the other person to have because he doesn't need it. What's ordained for one person is his role in this world, his part. And there's no connection to what's ordained to another person. A person would really believe that, that God ordains every person to have what they need. So uh, uh, then there's no way of being jealous of somebody else. It's out of my league. It's not something that has any connection to me. But because people believe that you get what you grab, and just like he has it, I can have it, right? Then it's, uh, that's uh, um, what the prohibition is based on. If people would have the right outlook on life and understand that what a person has is given to him by God in order to fulfill his unique role in this world, then uh, what's given to someone else to fulfill their unique role is not, not something that's, that has any connection to me, and therefore it should not ge generate any kind of jealousy. With this we can understand something else that the Torah says. The Torah says that three times a year all Jewish males are supposed to go up to Yerushalayim and um, to celebrate Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot there, bring certain sacrifices, and come to be seen in the uh, courtyard of the Beis Hamikdash, and uh, their wives go with them, and their children go with them. Nobody leaving their wives and children home to spend Yomtev themselves. So the entire Jewish population goes, leaves their homestead, and goes to Yerushalayim. That puts the entire Eretz Israel vulnerable to Goyim coming and just taking it over. Nobody's there. There's no policemen. There's no, there's no soldiers. All of them have to be in Yerushalayim. So Torah tells us, No one will covet your land when you go up to Yerushalayim three times a year and uh, Mamela, God will protect the homestead and it won't be vulnerable to attack and to be taken over by foreign forces when you're in Yerushalayim. Always bothered me. Why does the Torah pro promise us lo sach They won't covet it. Let them covet it all they want. Just promise me they won't take it. That God will protect it and make sure they can't take it. I don't care what they want. Why does the Torah promise us lo sach Based on what we just said, when Cloud Yisrael go up three times a year to Shalayim, they learn what holiness is. The Gemara says that um, how come the hot springs of Tiberia 
are not in Yerushalayim. Wouldn't it be an honor to Yerushalayim to have the hot springs there? And how come the lush fruits of the Galil are not in Yerushalayim? Wouldn't it be a covet to Yerushalayim to have those lush fruits there? The Gemara says, because three times a year when we go to Yerushalayim to see and to be seen by God and to to understand what holiness is, he doesn't want us to go for a hot bath and for good fruit. He wants to go the same shamai, right? Totally for spiritual purposes. On the other hand, the hot springs do ex exist in Tveria, and the luscious fruit does exist in um, in the, the Galil. Why? Because living a natural life and connecting to the land physically and materially is a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah of Yishu Eretz Yisrael, settling Eretz Yisrael and being settled in Eretz Yisrael. And everywhere else in Eretz Yisrael is a mitzvah. Anything that some sofer says, anything that helps to settle the people emotionally, physically, any occupation that helps to settle the people is the mitzvah of Yishu Eretz Yisrael, settling and being settled in Eretz Yisrael. But you have to do it properly. How do you know how to do it properly? How do you know to take those physical, material things and dedicate them to God? Like three times a year going to Yerushalayim and absorbing the concepts of holiness and then going back to your homestead and applying it, putting it into practice in your material and physical existence, doing it for the sake of holiness, for the sake of spirituality. So, Torah says the following, if you understand that, and you go three times a year to Yerushalayim to understand what holiness is, what service to God is, and then you put that into practice when you go home, and you live a life of Kedusha, of holiness, you're a Mamleches Kohanim, the Goy Kadosh, you're a, a um, empire of Kohanim who are there to serve God, and therefore you live a holy existence, even in your material and physical life, then I promise you, no goy will want your land, because they'll realize it's out of their league. They're not interested in living a life like that. So they won't want your land. They won't come to Losachmot, because they'll realize that this is a land that is meant for people living a spiritual existence. And, and and sublimating their physical and material things for holiness. What do they want a land like that? But if you live in this land in a totally secular and material existence, then why shouldn't they want the land? Uh, they have, they want that kind of life too, and Eretz is a nice place. That's what the Torah is promising. If you go three times to Jerusalem and you learn the lessons and you apply them, and I promise you, then the, the non-Jewish world won't covet your land because they'll realize it's out of their league. It's not something that they have any desire for. Just to amplify this understanding in the Ibn Ezra, like we said before, this prohibition, therefore, is only if you want something that you can't easily get somewhere else, something that is specific to the person who owns it and you want it that 
he shouldn't have it, you should have it. But if it's something that's nice, for instance, you want the donkey because you can use a nice, strong donkey too, and you can go buy one. And you're uh, initiated to the thought of getting a nice donkey because your neighbor has a nice donkey. There's nothing, nothing wrong with that. People can uh, can uh, buy new things and want new things or whatever. Uh, it's only that you want it because it's his. That's the problem. Um, uh, to amplify that, uh, ask a few questions here on this prohibition. Torah says you shouldn't covet your neighbor's donkey or his house or his wife. Now, isn't it strange that the Torah used the same verb, the same verb of coveting, to apply to the neighbor's donkey and the neighbor's wife? They don't seem to be the same feeling. Right? unless there's something really not good about the wife or something very good about the donkey or something very sick about the guy. Otherwise, the desire for one's neighbor's donkey and his neighbor's wife is not the same, so why does the Torah use the same verb? In addition, the Medrash says that the Ten Commandments, five on one side and five on the other, correspond one by one. The first five are more spiritual things, and the next five are physical things, but they correspond one to the other. The first four make a lot of sense, the last one is difficult to understand. The first of the first five is belief in God, and the first of the second five is not murdering. Man was created in God's image. When you believe in God spiritually, you are increasing God's image in the world. When you murder physically, you are decreasing God's image in the world physically. When you don't murder, you're increasing God's image in the world. So this is on the physical side, this is on the spiritual side. The second is don't go after strange gods. That's spiritual. A woman going after strange men who are not her husband is the adultery is a physical form of idolatry. The third don't take God's name in vain. That's a spiritual prohibition that corresponds to not stealing. When people steal, they usually swear to cover up their stealing. That's the physical prohibition. This is a spiritual prohibition that corresponds to it. The fourth one, keep the Shabbos and don't bear false witness. Shabbos is a testimony that God created the world. And the spiritual realm. It's a testimony. Bearing false witness is like desecrating the Shabbos and not bearing witness that God created the world in the spiritual vein. Here it's bearing false witness against your neighbor in a physical vein. The last two don't seem to have any connection. Honor your father and mother and don't covet. Where's the connection between them? The answer, I think, and this is also an elaboration on the idea that we mentioned in the Ibn Ezra, the, um, the uh, Pasuk says in Mishlei, Rekev atzamos kina. Jealousy rots your bones. Now you can understand that literally. When a person is jealous of someone else, it eats them up alive. But there's a deeper meaning. And that is, and the Gemara says on that, what you want you won't get, and what you have you'll lose. Basically the idea is the following. 
kina, jealousy, is like we said, not wanting something that somebody else has because it's something that you could use, but it's wanting it because it's his. And you're not happy being you. And you want to be him. And therefore, to be him, you need everything he has. His wife, his, his, his um, uh, material possessions, his physical possessions. I want to be him because I don't think there's any importance in being me. And if only I could be him. And therefore, I want everything about him. So the same feeling for wanting his wife and his donkey is the same feeling. If you want the wife for sexual reasons, that's a separate prohibition. If you want the donkey because it's strong, and you could use a strong donkey, there's no prohibition in that. I want it because it's his, and I want to be him. And therefore, if that's your motivation, you're never going to be him. So you can't get what you want. And what you have will atrophy because you don't focus in on what you have and develop it. You only focus in on what somebody else has and what they are and you want to be them. And therefore you totally disregard what you are, never develop it, what you have you're going to, you're going to lose. That's what it means, rekev atzamos. Atzamos, besides being bones, it means your essence. It rots your essence because you disregard who you are and what you are and what your essence is and only focus in on what somebody else is and what they have that makes them who they are. With that, you can understand something I heard. It says that you shouldn't covet your neighbor's donkey or his house or his wife, everything that your neighbor owns. I heard that the idea is the following, that... Um, the Rabbanishal meets out to every person what they need in this world to fulfill their mission. And that includes not only the positive things, but the negative things also. Everybody is given a peckle, a package to carry on their shoulders of sorrows, of difficulties and challenges in this world that they have to deal with. And that also helps to, for them to fulfill their mission in this world. So if you want the good things that the neighbor has, then you should want all the negative things the neighbor has too. And people don't want to switch packages with other people. Everybody was given the lot in life that they can handle and that nobody really should want to or does want to exchange the lot in life that other people have. So if you want the things that interest you in your neighbor, but you want to be him, then take the whole package and don't covet, only if you would covet all that your neighbor has, even the negative things, right, that you don't want their challenges and their sorrows, then don't want the things that they have that are positive, that also are part of their mission. And therefore, according to the Ibn Ezra, part of this prohibition is not believing that God controls this world that what people have in this world is um, is determined by God to give them the props and the costume that they need to be able to fulfill their mission in, in this world. But people think that everything is arbitrary. You can grab whatever you want, and uh, that, is, um, uh, that is a lack of faith and belief in the fact that God runs the world. And that's the connection 
between the mitzvah of honoring a parent and not coveting. Because if you covet, you show that you're not happy being you. And who made you you? Your parents. So how can you honor your parents if you're not happy being you? So there's a tremendous connection between honoring your parents and not coveting, being happy with who you are, developing your strengths and dealing with your mission in life and not coveting somebody else's mission and the things that are meant for them to use in fulfillment of their mission in this world. In that vein, we have a deeper understanding of what it says in Pirkei Ovos, that a person has to be someach bechelko, happy with your lot, not just with what God apportioned out to you, but your lot, your mission in this world. And therefore you're happy with what God needed out for you to fulfill that mission. And um, with that also, um, you can understand uh, that the Masil Sisharim says that another aspect of this prohibition is that if a person spends his time thinking about the material things that he wants and, and desires um, uh, and, and spends his time and effort and focus on that, then he becomes a very material-minded person and that takes away from being a spiritual-minded person and that takes away from the whole purpose of life in this world. As Rav Shamshul Thur Hirsch puts it, that substitutes love of God for love of things, with love of things. Instead of loving God, one loves things so much that he spends his time and his entire focus on achieving things, especially when he's jealous of other people who have those things. And the Rabbeinu Bachya says, that ultimately this is the last of the ten because it could cause one to transgress all the other ten. Because if you have that tremendous desire and jealousy and you're running after material things, then there's nothing that will hold you back, not murder, not stealing, not all the other things, not desecrating the Shabbos. If your whole focus in life is running after material things and having this burning jealousy of having everything that you see by others that you want that thing for yourself, you'll stop at nothing and end up transgressing all the other nine of the Ten Commandments uh, in order to achieve your uh, tremendous uh, desire for material things. With that, I think we can also understand a difficult chazal. Chazal say, we learn from Yaakov Avinu that he safely put his family on the other side of, of, of a brook, Mavri Yabok, when he was um, uh, threatened by Esau. And then we find Yaakov is alone on the other side of the brook. And Chazal say he went back to get some uh, insignificant earthenware jars that he forgot. And we learn from there that Sadikim Chavivim Aleyam Amonam Yosem Yigufan A Tzadik, his money is more precious than his body. Now, on the surface, that does not make sense because, first of all, uh, if a person doesn't have a body, his money is useless. Secondly, that doesn't seem to describe a Tzadik. I would say Tzadikim couldn't care less about money. Right? Jack Benny, 
he was a famous joke that somebody put a gun to his head and said, your money or your life? And he didn't respond. The person said, your money or your life? He says, wait, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. But that's not a tzaddik. So how could a tzaddik value his money more than his body? But based on what we said, explaining the Ibn Ezra, a tzaddik understands that his material possessions are given to him as a tool to serve God. It's his props to, to fulfill his mission in service to God in this world. His body is also a costume that's needed to be able to serve his mission in this world. So the tzaddik understands that um, both his money, his material possessions, and his body are basically tools for service of, of God. Now, which one's more precious? Not more important. Of course, the body's more important because you don't have a body. The money is useless. But what's more precious? The rabbis tell us that what one puts more effort into is more precious to him. Less effort, less precious. That's one of the reasons why God put us in this physical world where there are constantly challenges and there's choices to make in order that we should earn more specifically create our world to come by doing the right things in this world, by making our souls more godlike, by making the right choices, we create our create our relationship with God in the next world. And we do that both through our use of our bodies properly and use of our material possessions which were given to us as tools to serve God and to earn our share in the world to come. Now, which of those two tools involves more effort? Let's see. How much effort do you have to put in to getting a body? None. It's a birthday present. First birthday, you got a body for free. You have to put effort into using your body and maintaining it. How about money? So the same Gemara that says that Sadiq and their money is more precious to them than their body why so much, the Gemara says, because they don't steal. Now, if you steal, you may be able to get your money easily. But if you don't steal, you have to earn every penny honestly. That takes a lot of effort. So it takes a lot of effort to get your money. It takes a lot of effort to maintain it. it takes a lot of effort to use it. So out of three efforts, getting, maintaining, and using, Three of them apply to your money, and only two apply to the body. So which, both of them are tools to serve God. Which one is more precious? The one you put more effort into. So a tzaddik's money is more precious to him than his body, since he looks at both of them as tools to serve the Rabboni Shalola. With this, you can also understand the connection between the last of the and the first. When it comes to spiritual things, it's an endless cycle. When we finish reading the Torah, we start again, voracious. When you finish a Masechta in Shas, you start the next thing. We never finish. We're always going in a, a cycle, in a circle. It's all eternal. So when you finish the Ten Commandments, you start again. So there's always a connection between the beginning and the end. And the beginning is belief in God. The end is not coveting, which is a 
is a result. If you really believe that the Rabbanisham runs this world, then you believe that the Rabbanisham is the one who ordains your material possessions, your body, your mission in this world, and there's a connection, a very strong connection between not coveting and Anochi Hashem Elokecha, believing that God is the one who created us and guides us and provides for us on a regular basis. I hope, I hope I've given you what to think about and Tain Lechacham the Yechkam Old, right? Uh, I've given you things to think about. Now go and develop them even more so you'll understand uh, not only this tenth of the Aseris Hadibros, but all the other nine that others explain to you uh, now are a total unit and should be able to be understood as part of the totality uh, in a much better way than hearing them only piecemeal. A lot of Hatzlacha and uh, uh, hearty uh, shalom to all my uh, friends in Atlanta. We hope to see you here and uh, perhaps to give me a chance to visit you there also uh, at a at a a future opportunity. Okay, Hatzlocha, and may you go, Mechayel, Elchayel, together with your your very, very Choshev Rabbonim, and uh, Rabbi Feldman, Rabbi Foxbrunner, and all the other Mechanchim, and teachers that you have, um, you have a lot of Hatzlocha.